Welcome to The Art of Medicine, the program that explores the arts, business, and clinical aspects of the practice of medicine. I'm Dr. Andrew Wilner, and today my guest is Dr. Maureen Zick. Uh, welcome, Dr. Zick. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining me, and you're here for two reasons. One, uh, you may know that this program began as a locum tenens program because I published a book a couple of years ago about my many years in locums and I started doing interviews and it evolved into the art of medicine. So since you're doing locums, I thought you were a perfect guest. And secondly, uh, you've just published a paper about the renin, the role of the renin angiotensin system in COVID-19. And I read that paper word for word. I thought it was very interesting. I think it complements a lot of the literature there. You know, we're all trying to understand, uh, well, we're all trying to, uh, you know, treat COVID, avoid COVID, and, and, but probably most of all, understand its pathophysiology so we can find some way to prevent it and cure it and to know how it really acts. And as a neurologist, I'm very interested in the sort of myriad of neurologic complications that are involved and it's a multi-system uh, disorder. So we're gonna get to that, but first tell me what you're doing now. Give me some insight into your locums work. Uh, well, um, the majority of my career I had spent as a staff anesthesiologist. And at some point uh, about maybe two or three years ago, I, started to crave what I can only describe as agency. I, I wanted to have a little bit more control over my career path and my day-to-day -day career options than working as a permanent place anesthesiologist was affording me. Um, you know, anesthesia is a linked profession. You need infrastructure. You need a surgical base to make it run. Um, and so that tends to put you in a group model and you have to be responsive to everyone else's needs. But There's after the schedule there, you know, yes, just, you exactly. Know. When you work, when you can take vacation, I, I was at some points trying to request vacation weeks, two years in advance, just for the hope of getting them. And so I, I decided to try locums just, as a desire to have more agency in my own schedule, I had missed a lot in terms of my children's, you know, school plays and sports. Um, you know, if a surgeon decides they're not going to have hours, they just don't have hours that day. But for an anesthesiologist, it's a little more dicey. So I decided to go with locums to try to be able to schedule more um, effectively for my own personal needs. Um, for family interactions, but also because I really love writing and writing about medicine. And I was hoping to have a little bit more time in my schedule to, to be able to pursue that. Well, that really resonates with me because, you know, when I wrote about locums and when I did it personally, it was a way to achieve flexibility and work-life balance. I write also, of course, and, uh, you know, there's not enough time in the day. So I would work for a few months, take a few months off. It allowed me to discover Southeast Asia, you know, become a, a pretty good underwater photographer and do all these other things that when you're, when you're locked into a schedule, uh, you, can't, you can't do. So has it worked out for you? Did it give you that balance that you were looking for? Well, um, I do wish that I'd had your book before I made the leap because I think it would have saved me from a little bit of naivete. 
Um, one of the things that I wasn't prepared for was how much driving I would be doing. Um, so uh, the answer is yes and no. Um, I certainly have had much more flexibility in terms of the way I can schedule myself. But often where I go is much further than where I used to go. So I do spend more time in my car, uh, which has given me um, time to connect with my deepest thoughts. More time to <laughs> it, listen to podcasts. Yes, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's seg right away to your paper. Um, okay. As a locum tenens anesthesiologist, how do you even fit in sort of an academic? I mean, I was pretty impressed at sort of the, the depth that you were going into um, I mean, it sounded like sort of an associate professor kind of article, you know, not somebody that just does locums on the weekend. So explain that to me, how you got to that, that point of sophistication. Well, I, I think anesthesia is a very misunderstood profession. And, and I think anyone that's spent any time in an OR in their career will have heard, oh, the patient's asleep. Now you can just put your feet up and read the paper or... Um, I've, I've even had surgeons say to me over the years, more than once, the patient sleeps in their house, what could go wrong? And I, I think many people don't understand that anesthesia is actually an immense perturbation of physiology. It's an artificial unconsciousness that um, goes together with disruption of the physiology of almost every organ system in the body. So anesthesiologists, in order to practice safely, have to really have both breadth and depth of multi-organ system physiology and, and pathophysiology. And so when I was training, the, the focus of my own interest in reading the literature and, and building my own knowledge base was physiology and pathophysiology. Um, and I had a, a prior life as a graduate student before medicine doing work in cell biology. And so I tended to probably dig more in the basic science literature than many, many doctors might just because of my prior life. Um, when I was a first year anesthesia resident, one of my mentors, uh, Dr. Joseph McIsaac, who's a, a hospital bioterrorism uh, and epidemic mass casualty preparedness expert, he started turning me on to the literature for the original SARS in 2003. And so I followed that literature. And as I dug into that, I started to recognize that the retinangiotensin system was actually a component of every aspect of the physiology that I needed to know for my own job. Um, carotid body, hypoxemia detection, ventilation perfusion matching to prevent hypoxemia in the lungs, renal function, cardiac function, arrhythmia prom promotion, heart failure, all of these areas I was finding RAS. And so it became a focus of my own uh, personal interest in, in researching it and also in my own teaching when I taught both clinically uh, medical students and residents, but also uh, graduate students at Central Connecticut State University. So RAS has been a big part of my own career. Um, Tell me about the day that some light bulb went off and you said, well, RAS, that has to do with all of these different pathologies that we're seeing in COVID-19. Well, um, I don't know that there was one specific day. I think that there were a lot of days strung together like Christmas tree lights. 
Um, one of the um, one of the days was when they announced that uh, mortality rates for the obese were two to three times higher than thin. Um, the original linkage to hypertensives having higher mortality um, when they um, published data showing that men were more likely to die than women. Um, and then cancer patients had higher mortality. Um, even, even people who were considered cured from cancer. Um, and so all of those things were sort of building in my mind. And then when they started reporting on silent hypoxia, I, I felt certain that that was because of the role of RAS in apoptosis and cell volume regulation and the glomus cells of the carotid body have, have ACE2, so they can, be, um, they can be entered and disrupted by the coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2. Um, and so I think that those, all those little events that I sort of strung together made me, made me feel that we have an armamentarium that we could turn on this virus and we just had to draw more attention to that. Um, you know, I, I made a few calls, but everybody was so busy. It was hard to, um, it was hard to get anybody on the phone in those days. So I got two other physicians who were like-minded and we, we wrote the paper together to try to get the word out there. And I'll put the reference uh, to your paper uh, here so people can uh, look it up and get the, the nitty gritty details because there's a lot of them and far more than we have time to uh, discuss uh, in the next uh, 10 minutes or so. Uh, the, the theory that I sort of read about, it was in the New England Journal, was about endothelial, endotheliolitis and inflammation of the blood vessels that can cause stroke and there was some thought about direct injury of the virus to the blood vessels. And um, is, is that a completely different theory or does that overlap with what you're talking about? Well, I think that um, it's important to know that, that RAS is a multi-system regulator. Um, as part of the stress response, the body has to coordinate changes in pretty much every system, cardiovascular system, respiratory system, renal, GI, and RAS therefore has tentacles that reach out and touch all of these organ systems. And one very important one is the endothelium. When the body is not facing injury or infection, the endothelium suppresses infection, vaso promotes vasodilation for good blood flow and oxygenation of, of organs. Um, in the event of injury, however, the endothelium has to be kicked into an emergency response mode to promote vasoconstriction, promote inflammation to fight pathogens that enter, um, promote coagulation to prevent hemorrhage. Um, and so RAS is, a, is an important driver of that changeover. When the coronavirus enters any cell, in the body using ACE2, its receptor of choice. Angiotensin converting enzyme two? Type, type two, yeah. It's, um, it's sort of the, what we call it the younger brother enzyme of ACE. Um, it was discovered, I think shortly before the original SARS um, epidemic in 2003. 
and it emerged as the counterbalance to the famous ACE from the our original linear pathway of, of RAS, um, angiotensinogen um, converted by renin to angiotensin one, which was then converted um, by ACE to angiotensin two. Um, but it turns out that the RAS system is far more complex than just a linear pathway. And it has both a pro-inflammatory, pro-clotting, pro-insulin dysregulation arm. And it has this other arm that ACE2 is a core player in that balances out all of those things so that they don't get out of hand. When the coronavirus enters a cell, it shuts off the cell's expression of ACE2. And so what was originally meant to be a balance point gets shifted heavily in favor of original ACE and all of the things that it can do that are destructive if there are too much of them or if they're done when they're not needed. Um, and so I think that that's what's really emerging um, from, the, from the endothelial interface, for instance, uh, inappropriate clotting, um, strokes that are occurring in young patients with no stroke risk factors. That's pretty clear evidence in my mind of a RAS imbalance picture. It's the reason why disease states with pre-existing RAS imbalance, such as diabetes and hypertension have higher rates of stroke in the first place. So first of all, let me comment that I think this is an excellent demonstration of the value of basic research, you know, and why people have to slave away in the laboratory with, you know, pipettes and beakers to figure all this stuff out. Uh, because otherwise you just don't really know what's going on. And the human body is unbelievably complex. I mean, you have one diagram there, you know, A affects B and B affects C, but C also affects A. You know, it all goes around and around and everything's intertwined. And if you don't understand it, you're not going to be able to do anything about it. And also it tells you that if you do sort of manipulate one of those players, that you may have effects you know, all the way down here that uh, you need to be aware of that you might do a good thing that ends up being a really bad thing later, you know, and you have to be very, very uh, careful. And then, so that brings me, we already have a class of drugs, ACE inhibitors. So that would seem the obvious thing. And yet there are many of these patients who are already taking ACE inhibitors, doesn't really seem to be doing them any good or, or does it when they get COVID? Well, I think that this is an area that's not entirely clarified yet. Um, there is some evidence that people who are on um, prior prescribed RAS blockers may have lower rates of hospitalization. That was reported, at least in a preprint. Um, but I think that the, the complication comes from lumping all of those drugs together as if they're all the same. Uh, it's, it's almost like the way that certain people lump all voters of a certain type together as if they're all- Or the epilepsy type. drugs, for example. Oh, it's an epilepsy drug, but they're all many, many classes and they're quite different. But the, um, the renin-angiotensin system blocking drugs have a lot of different pharmacodynamics individually. And so lumping them together, I think, covers up some of their more unique individual properties, which may- uh, give individual members of those classes more effectiveness in rebalancing RAS in these disorders. But I don't know that that's really been effectively communicated and looked at yet. Um, there are studies that are trying to evaluate prospectively whether giving more severely ill 
COVID patients, uh, RAS blockers might, might help them, but they tend to cluster around the more popular ones, like low sartan. I think there's probably four or five different studies that are looking at that. Um, but when you dissect down into the basic science literature, you find that in the animal studies, at least, there are significant results differences that come from the tissue penetration of the different drugs. Um, and that's um, in the dementia literature become very clear to me that when you look at animal models that are trying to replicate Alzheimer's disease, neurodegeneration, uh, RAS blockers that can get in, give more cognitive protection than RAS blockers that can't cross the blood-brain barrier. And so I think that that is a relevant uh, area to explore in COVID because of the organ system damage that you're seeing in the heart, in the kidneys, the better organ penetrating drugs, the better tissue penetrating drugs in those classes may be more effective at rebalancing there inside the tissues um, than the ones that tend to stay more in the circulation like an alpro. Something like an alpro might have better luck potentially stopping the inappropriate clotting because if you're just trying to reach the endothelium, it, it's not that hard if you're in the bloodstream, but to get deeper into the kidneys, deeper into the brain, you have to have the right pharmacodynamic properties to allow you to get there. There's been some discussion about chronic effects of the virus. You know, for those people who get the virus and survive, they're not always immediately well. Mm -hmm. And in, in there's some, I've only seen the headlines, you know, of, of a neurologic fog, for example, that has been reported. Uh, some things we understand, like critical illness, myopathy or neuropathy. You know, if you're in the ICU for two months and you get better, you don't just walk out, you know, a perfect person the next day. That, that we understand and, and that's well known. But do you, do you think the virus is doing something specific that's causing sort of a chronic persistent uh, injury? Well, I think that the, um, the downstream effects of the virus are what RAS does when it's imbalanced. I think one of, the, um, one of the things you mentioned about my paper was how long it is. When you're putting out a, a hypothesis, you often run into the, the problem of what's correlation and what's causation. I think the most famous um, example of that is probably in the 1850s in London during the cholera epidemic when Jon Snow was trying to prove that contaminated water was the cause. And the miasma guys were saying, um, no, it's a cloud of noxious invisible gas. And one of the studies showed that higher elevation, people who lived at higher elevation in London had lower rates of cholera. And so the miasma guys all said, oh, that shows that we're right, that the gas cloud can't get there. But what they didn't look at was that the, the higher elevations had a different water source because it never entered their minds. So they had a correlation living at a higher elevation, but they didn't have a causation. And that would take Jon Snow a little bit longer to prove that it was the water. And so I think by trying to lay out so many different areas that RAS is involved, I was trying to show, okay, this is what 
RAS does when it's imbalanced and it does it here and you see that in COVID and it does it here and you see that in COVID and you see it here and it does it in COVID in the heart and the kidneys and the lungs in ventilation provision matching. And so I was trying to lay out a bunch of different areas to say, this is a piece of COVID, this is a piece of COVID, this is a piece of COVID and they're all RAS. When you look at an area I didn't write about in the paper, the dementia literature, RAS is now understood to be a player in neurodegeneration through its effects on glial cells, astrocytes, microglia, oligodendrocytes. So when you have an imbalance in RAS that leads to dementia or the cognitive impairments and depression, which have also been linked to RAS, it really shouldn't pathophysiologically really look that different. If you kill oligodendrocytes, you're gonna have slower conduction speed. If you kill off astrocytes, you're going to have inability to uptake neurotransmitters to prevent excitotoxicity of neurons. You're gonna have a loss of regula regulation of the synapse um, that astrocytes normally provide. So the things that RAS does in any condition that RAS does it are what you're gonna see in COVID-19. So there are so many correlations in so many different systems that it does suggest there actually may be a causation yeah. as, as well. So how is this theory playing out, you know, amongst the like mainstream? Have you gotten any feedback? You know, is this off the wall or is this, yeah, this makes sense. Have you got any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I have gotten a couple of people, um, you know, shoot me a few emails um, saying that they're, um, you know, sort of turned on to the, to the idea. And I think quite honestly, it wouldn't be that hard to, to prove. Um, one of the things uh, I thought about earlier, um, I was just talking about Jon Snow to you, but when cholera first struck in 1848 and caught Jon Snow's radar, he published a theory talking about um, how he thinks the contaminated water rather than the asthma was um, at fault. And he showed two, two tenement complexes that were very near each other and would share the same air. And one had dozens of cases and one had like one case because they had separate water supplies. So one of the critics said, um, well, um, you haven't really proven that it's the water, but if you took the contaminated water, took it far away and had someone drank it and they got cholera, then we'd know. And I can just imagine him saying, what, you want me to give contaminated water to somebody? But, um, but for this, you could just, you could give patients RAS blockers in a controlled study environment in the hospital system. So it would be, it would be fairly straightforward to see if it flies. I like that. I'll digress a minute. I just finished the book. You know, I live in Memphis, Tennessee, which had one of the biggest uh, yellow fever problems before that. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. In the 1870s. And somebody came up with this crazy mosquito theory. Oh, it's the mosquitoes that transfer it. And they actually infected human beings. Uh, many yeah. of them died of the, of the yellow oh, fever yeah. along the You're way. Right. One, of, uh, one of Walter Reed's colleagues, actually, there's a theory that he infected himself and he later died. I forget what his name was, Jesse something. Um, but yeah, the, the mosquito theory originated, I guess, with a physician in Cuba. And yep. that, that's where they ended up doing the, um, doing the studies during the Spanish-American War. 
So we have I institutional review boards now, IRBs, and we try and do these things a lot more safely for the participants. But I agree, it would seem that since we do know at least how to manipulate the uh, RAS system a little bit, there might be a way to uh, sort of have two or three groups of people and you know, no manipulation, some manipulation, a lot of manipulation. And uh, if you had enough patients and enough institutions you know, following the protocol, uh, there might be something that shakes out of that at least in the short term, you know, and when we have no, no, today is uh, November 6, 2020, right? So it's yeah. been going on for a while and they're, uh, everybody's working on a vaccine, but that's not something you do overnight. And yeah. uh, we're, you know, patiently waiting for it to be properly uh, done and hopefully there'll be success. But in the meantime, we're trying all kinds of things to try and help people who are sick. Yeah, and you know, there's been a lot of different reports about what's effective and what's not, but it seems that even remdesivir, when remdesivir has sort of fallen by the wayside in terms of impacting mortality. Bit. Yeah, and then one of the companies was reporting even that their monoclonal antibodies really weren't showing any significant survival benefit. But I mean, I kind of feel like an approach that attacks the virus for Ebola, sure, absolutely. You gotta, you gotta stop the virus. But for this, I still think you have to stop RAS. That's great. Well, Dr. Zick, I wanna thank you very much for joining me here on the Art of Medicine, talking a little bit about locums and a lot about RAS and uh, COVID-19. It's interesting and exciting. And I think, I think we're gonna hear a lot more about it. You know, as we understand more and more, this is going to say, yes, that's it, or it's part of it, or, or no, it's really something we haven't even thought about yet. So it's a pretty exciting time, and we want to get there as, as soon as we can. Absolutely. Well, thank you thank very much. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation.